Hello and welcome back to the Conflict Skills Podcast. I'm your host, professional mediator, Simon Good. In today's episode of the podcast, I'm going to be talking about the topic of parent and grandparent conflict, which potentially might result in restricted access to grandchildren or uh, maybe even having them cut off from seeing grandchildren at all. This is, I think, for a lot of people, a particularly sensitive topic. And as a mediator, when I've done mediations between parents and grandparents, they have been some of the most difficult cases that I've worked on. The levels of distress are just off the charts, often on both sides. And the challenge is that these are often not situations that have developed after a single incident or a single event. Sometimes people might say that that's the trigger or the catalyst for the relationship to be how it is right now. But of course, in all of these situations, there's been a buildup, often over a period of many, many years, which means that there have been misunderstandings or clashes of expectations or different sets of values being applied. And so by the time that you're at the point where you're discussing whether or not someone should see kids and how often, there are probably a whole bunch of different pressurized systems that are ready to explode, which means that you probably are dealing with people a lot of the time on the other side who are working with short fuses and you might interpret their responses as overreactions, overly dramatic, whatever and probably quite unfair. It's difficult then to understand exactly how someone can be so self-focused but still pretend to be the victim. And so as I talk about this topic today, my hope is that there'll be some different elements or bits and pieces that will be useful for you, particularly if you're dealing with one of these situations, but also if you're supporting somebody else going through relationship challenges. So I've structured the podcast today in three different sections. The first, I'll talk about some options for self-care and self-regulation, particularly during the times when maybe a grandparent's not seeing their kids or maybe a parent when the kids have gone off to see a grandparent and they're worried about what might be going on. I'll talk through the two most common mistakes that I've seen in particularly in terms of the way people discuss these types of issues. And then finally talk about the five different kinds of conflict and it's one of the most useful tools I think that can be applied to navigating these conversations and situations because it helps open the door for additional options. A common mistake people often make is just to keep doing the same thing again and again, hoping that it's going to be different. Well, you know, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've already got. And if you would like the situation to be different, well, I suppose today might be an opportunity to do something different if that's something that you're up for. As I go through the different examples, I don't want to imply necessarily that I hold a perspective one way or the other. I mean, particularly as a mediator, I often need to remain impartial between a parent and a grandparent, for example. And so as I talk about this topic today, uh, I think that's probably what I'll also do my best to do is just stay neutral. I can certainly empathize and understand the concerns on both sides. I've met parents and I've agreed with them that probably this grandparent wasn't a positive influence on the kid's life. But then how do you make that decision about how much access to allow them or you know, what an appropriate arrangement might look like? I just think that that is so case by case and situation dependent that I'm really reluctant to give advice and put forward my perspective. What I know and what stands out from the research around kids, particularly from separated parents, is the negative impact of conflict so whatever happens in terms of how assertive and firm you decide to be or how flexible and accommodating, 
I think one of the highest goals that you should have is to avoid exposing the kids to any conflict. This might be arguments and disagreements and tense conversations, but even like you making negative comments about the other person, even if it's a grandparent and you know all of the negative stuff they've done over the years, for a kid, that's going to be impossible for them to process this accurately as their brain's still developing. So if you give them the sense that there's conflict within the family or this person who they really like is, you know, a monster or whatever, it tends to make them feel confused. And the risk is that they would associate negative aspects of all of this with themselves. Kids tend to think of themselves as to some extent the center of the universe. So when, you know, mum makes a negative comment about dad or grandma and they the kid feels close to that person and maybe even sees some similarity and resonates with them in terms of their, you know, what they like and dislike or how they look or something. Well, of course, there's a risk that they'll interpret that negatively about themselves and then you might inadvertently create some type of a barrier or strain in your own relationship with, you know, the child, whether you're the grandparent or the parent in this situation. So the first topic that I wanted to talk about as a really important area to focus on is self-care. What you'll need to do is to stop this negative reciprocal spiral pattern. So if the other person makes a negative comment on Facebook or they send you a rude SMS or they don't get back to you for several days after you've written them a number of messages, you'll have an element of frustration and distress and disappointment and all the rest of it that builds up for you. And the first thing that you'll need to do is to make sure that you don't put that back into the system to continue to pollute the air between the two of you. So you'll need to find a way to be reasonable in the face of an unreasonable situation. And you know the person and you're familiar with their track record. And if you're dealing with someone who often disappoints you and lets you down or neglects to fulfill their obligations or whatever, you might need to prepare to be disappointed and let down and neglected and left with the obligations because you know this is how they tend to behave. Now, that doesn't mean that it's okay and that it's something that you should tolerate forever. Maybe there is a point where you say, look, this is your final warning, and then they do it again, and then you say, look, as discussed, this was the consequence, this is what I need from you now. If you're willing to do this, we can go back to the way it was. If if it continues, this is what I'm willing to accept for now. What's your take on it? You know, maybe there were reasons outside your control that I'm not aware of. I'd still take that stance of being open and empathetic and curious, even in situations where I'm gradually ratcheting up the level of assertiveness that I am in terms of the consequences that I'm implementing. Part of being prepared to be let down is avoiding reacting in the moment. When I send them a message, I should almost probably in my head be thinking, pretty sure this is the kind of thing that usually pushes their buttons. So I'm guessing there will be an angry SMS coming back in a few minutes. There's nothing that I can do about that. But what I don't want to do is let it push my own button. You know, they know you, they've got a way of pushing your buttons. So that's not an easy thing to anticipate. One of the things you can do is rehearse it. Think about the rudest possible thing that they might say. And then how you'll still be okay and you plant your feet on the floor, you know, wiggle your toes and feel your socks in your shoes. Anchor yourself in the present and then decide how to respond. So you might need to take some deep breaths or let the phone be in a different room so you don't look at it as soon as the SMS comes through or ask someone else to read it to you or look at it and then put it down and go and hit a punching bag for five minutes and get the adrenaline out of your system. You know what they're likely to do. And so if that's a pattern, it's like, well, what are you doing then? 
I often talk with clients and they say, you know, you should meet my ex-partner. This is what they constantly do to me. And I say, okay, how have things been lately? And they say, oh, on the weekend, this is what happened. You won't believe it. And I sit there thinking, well, what do you mean I won't believe it? You've just told me they've been doing this for three years. So I'm not at all surprised they did it last weekend. What I'm surprised at is the fact that you don't seem to see this coming. And we want everyone here really to be showing up as best they can to support the kids. So that might mean that you want the person, the grandparent or the parent who you're dealing with to be the best version of themselves. And so when they're being unreasonable, aggressive, irrational, rude, insensitive, well, okay, that's what they're doing. And so you can still display empathy, compassion, gentleness, respect, Uh, in how you communicate, not so much the what. You know, the what might be just a practical restriction of time or insisting on time or whatever. But uh, in terms of the way that you do it, you don't need to become harsh simply because the situation is uh, sort of got away from you. And so if you're prepared, you can decrease the chances of that happening. It's not fair, it's not right, but at least in the short term, you probably will need to engage with the other person on their terms if you're hoping for a chance of a good outcome, whatever that looks like for you. If it's spending more time with the kids or being more confident that the other person's not doing sort of activities that you're not comfortable with or whatever it is. So I'd think first about what do you need if it's counseling or just exercise or really maintaining your well-being routine. Maybe it is something like meditation or having a friend to debrief with, but it could also be things like just scheduling time before you go and meet the other person or before you talk to them or changing something else in terms of the structure. If you go and stay and your son-in-law always loses it on the second day that they see you, well, why don't you just see them for one day (laughs) and then set up another day a couple of months later and build a bit of a positive track record first before looking at options for more frequent contact? I suppose that's the question is a cost-benefit analysis on the benefits or costs of pushing in the short term and responding and reacting versus the costs and the benefits of strategic response, which might mean delaying and thinking something through or letting something go and being more flexible, even though it's technically something that you're entitled to or something that you think should happen. Again, I don't necessarily think this is something that should or shouldn't happen. It's just, I'm surprised at sometimes the black and white way that people sometimes see these situations and this unwillingness to back down. Like, you know, instead of seeing the kids for one day because they've driven a long distance, they think that they should be entitled to see them the next day as well. And then every single time it ends up in a massive blow up and conflict. And I just, I often talk with these people and say, look, this is a dilemma. You've got two bad options. Maybe short positive contact is better than long pretty consistently negative contact. What's your take on that? What, what do you make of it? And then often we spend time talking about how unfair and unreasonable the other person is. And in a lot of these situations, I completely agree. And then we're back to the dilemma. <laughs> Given all of that, what, what's going to work best? What's the least bad option? And for you, it's the relationship with your grandkid that's important. So maybe seeing them less frequently, but it being a positive interaction, which they remember in a positive light is actually something that's more important to you than showing the, you know, your son-in-law that's a complete jerk, um, that he can't push you around and you're going to stand up for yourself or whatever the other strong principle is that you're 
considering. It could also be things like just scheduling time before you go and meet the other person or before you talk to them so that you're not rushing and flustered and going from a stressful thing immediately into this conversation because that means that you'll carry that buildup of cortisol, the, the stress hormone that we have, as well as the associated buildup of adrenaline and blood pressure and blood sugar and all the rest of it. That kinetic energy, if you walk in shaking and already feeling frazzled, of course, it's more likely that you'll react when the other person makes a particularly insensitive comment or whatever they normally do that pushes your buttons. So I'd think proactively and quite deliberately about self-care and then also focusing on what you can control is something that's really helpful. Lying awake in bed, ruminating about how terrible this other person's being usually doesn't help. If we give more oxygen and airtime to these negative emotions, it tends to just make us feel more upset. The other person is maybe acting in a way that's not right and you feel like it's just unacceptable and it should be different, but there's nothing you can do even if you wish that they would have a frontal lobotomy or a brain transplant or whatever. So focus on what you can control, drafting an email, planning a structured calm routine next time you see them, preparing an activity that you'll do with the kids next time you see them, thinking about what kind of Christmas presents they might like. And trying your best anyway to stop yourself getting almost like sucked down the drain of this negative emotional rumination that we tend to get stuck on. So the next thing I want to talk about are the two most common mistakes that I often observe, and they are perceived pressure and perceived criticism. And I use the word perceived in front of both of those because to some extent, it's in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> it's not up to you whether or not the comment you made was appropriate or not. It's how it was received. And you can't control that. But what you can do is do your absolute best effort to avoid giving the other person the impression that you're criticizing them or that you're putting pressure on. So when can I see the kids next? Just a, a message like that. The risk is that it's putting pressure. It might also imply criticism. It's like, what the heck's wrong with you? Why haven't you let me see them until now? So another option might be something like, hey, I don't know what you've got next. You've got on over the next couple of weeks. Um, I happen to have these dates below available. I just want to give you a heads up. I don't want to put pressure on and I'm not looking for you to reply yes or no on the spot. Um, would there be a time you might be able to give them some thought and let me know a date that works for you? Not, maybe I can follow up with a phone call over the next few days. I know that you're flat out at the moment. So we're acknowledging those contextual factors. We're specifically saying I'm not expecting you to reply on the spot. We're maybe normalizing the fact that they might not get back to us. I know you're flat out at the moment, hopefully in a way to avoid this perceived criticism. So obviously the words that you use and the phrases, you would use different you know, language than I would. Your relationship with your family is different to mine. But those are the elements, I guess, that you might include. And we're going a little bit above and beyond what might be considered reasonable here. Again, your job is to be reasonable in the face of an unreasonable situation. As a parent, and maybe you're wanting to um, communicate something to a grandparent, it's really important to avoid that pressure and criticism. This is something that we thought might work. How does that sit with you? Or, you know, I noticed that the kid came back and they were sunburned or they were hungry or something like that. I'm sure that you fed them and they've looked after them, but I just want to touch base to make sure that, you know, we're communicating all of this clearly at handover. Could you let me know once when they've had sunscreen on last next time and I'll make sure I do the same with you too. So in all of the communication that we have, our goal should be to be overly gentle, overly polite, overly innocent and ignorant, which means that in any communication, we should assume good intentions of the other person. And when something's gone wrong, like they've 
gone against what they said they were going to do or let you down in some way, we should first assume that there were contextual reasons why. Did something happen? Did something come up? I just want to touch base and make sure everything's okay. Because the last thing we want is to say, well, thanks a lot. It's happened again. Now I see your true colors. And they were running late because they had a traffic accident or something. But, you know, these are the kind of memories that people hold on to. If someone has hurt you, like um, blamed you for something that wasn't your fault, you might be surprised at just how long and how determined people are to hold on to that negative feeling. It's almost like they nurture that resentment like a wounded bird clutched tightly to their chest. It's bizarre. It doesn't make them feel good. They're remembering the fact that you thought that they'd done the wrong thing. But these are just very difficult things for a lot of people to let go of, particularly if you're not aware of the fact that there's this buildup of resentment that you're carrying. So those are some of the mistakes that, of course, you would want to avoid. Now, in the next section, I'll talk about the five different kinds of conflict and give some examples of each, because this is often a really helpful starting point when you're dealing with conflict between parents and grandparents. It helps us to figure out what's going on, which of course then informs how we should respond rather than just taking a knee-jerk reaction. So I've talked about the five types of conflict in previous episodes. You can go back and check out. There's a number of different um, titles that include that. If it's new to you, though, just as a bit of a recap, the five types of conflict are data, interest, relationship, values, and structure. So relationship conflict is stuff like the tension that builds up in the back and forth. It's stuff like a misunderstanding, like maybe the other person didn't get back to you when you wrote them a message, and you're sitting there getting gradually a little bit more and more annoyed. And then when they finally write back, maybe you reply in a slightly more tense tone than you normally would, and then they might get insulted and they're not understanding the reason why. And this is the type of stuff that you'd call relationship conflict. A lot of people think about this as conflict, but of course there are the other factors that might be going on driving the situation. And when I'm coaching people, executive leaders in organisations, for example, I often suggest that it might be worth leaving relationship conflict until last to deal with. You probably notice at first that person was really rude or they interrupted me or they walked away when I was in the middle of speaking to them at handover or whatever. So it's the stuff that you see most obviously, but it's kind of like this can be a tip of the iceberg and underneath things is structural conflict or data conflict, for example. The other person thinks you've agreed to something and you haven't. And so you going and doing the you know, being very polite and offering to buy them a coffee or take them out for lunch. The type of stuff that can be helpful to solve that relationship conflict pattern, I'd probably leave that until last. So the next kind of conflict that you might consider is interest conflict. This is like, I want this and you want this. And with grandparents, obviously, one of the interests that you'd have is that you probably both want to spend as much time with the kids as possible. It might be things that you want, like time with the kids, spending Christmas morning with the kids, seeing them for Mother's Day or Father's Day or something like that. But it could also be things like nobody wants to do this, like driving the kids to an event, a a sports, uh, you know, if they go and do sports activities through the week or something like that. And again, we can sort of think about this interest conflict as another way of expanding the conversation that we would have. There are a number of different interests that parties have in any type of conflict, which means that we can almost use this as a way of bartering for different elements. And if we think about interest conflict, and if that's the way we decide to approach the situation, 
then you can kind of decide how assertive or how flexible and accommodating to be. So you might say something like, look, I know you'd really like to spend more time with the kids. At the moment, we're really focusing on establishing more of a routine within our family. And so when there's last minute changes, it tends to cause disruption, not just for the kids, but for us as well. We become more frazzled and then it impacts our sleep and tends to create a real negative snowball effect. Of course, you wouldn't be aware of all of this. And I don't mean to imply that this is your fault or anything, but what we're aiming for is more structure. So I suppose I just wanted to touch base with you and find out how early maybe we could do the planning for some of those dates that are coming up. Because if we can lock something in and then work around it, that will mean that we are actually probably much more flexible in terms of how much time you'd like to spend with the kids. Whereas if we leave it until the last minute, it's probably there's other things that have filled the diary by that stage. So it's interest conflict. Of course, you want to spend time with the kids, but what we want is structure, for example. And what I'm doing is naming both of si- both of the sides of that conversation and then setting up a solution-focused discussion. A grandparent might say something like, look, I mean, it's probably not surprising that we'd love to spend more time with the kids, but I fully appreciate just how hectic things are for you at the moment. You've got this and this and this to deal with, like maybe even outlining a number of the factors, like you're both busy with work and you've got other family commitments and I know you've got a holiday planned later in the year or whatever the things are that's important to them. And then just saying something like, would it be possible sometime to maybe go through the diary or could we touch base about how often I'm spending time with the kids? I'm wondering if maybe there's some times that I could spend with them and there might be also a bit of the load that we can take off your plate too. Like I'd be happy to drive them to their dancing class if that's something that would be helpful. Again, I don't want to put pressure and imply this is the only option. Just putting it out there as a maybe starting point. What do you think? So we're trying not to imply criticism, not to imply pressure, but set up that conversation to hopefully find a way for that win-win option where we can both have our interests met. Now, when I run seminars on these types of topics with people live, what I notice is that there are an increasing amount of furrowed brows as we go through these types of topics. And I think it's because it does actually sound quite outrageous. And I just want to put it on the table that I'm aware of this. Um, A lot of the examples that I'm giving and sort of the principles that I'm talking about and what's important, it's all on you, which is unfair. Like, in an ideal world, the other person would pitch in 50% of the respect and the um, meeting obligations and supporting one another and being flexible or communicating clearly or whatever it is that you wish that they would do more of. The challenge is that, you know, for better or worse, you're stuck with this person. If we were talking about a business relationship, I could say leave the business partner and go and find someone else to work with that you're a better fit for. The problem is that with family and when there's kids involved, you've you've stuck. So if you're dealing with someone who's being really unreasonable, your only option is to decide how reasonable you're prepared to be. And I think if it's important, there are probably good arguments as to why you should go above and beyond and take it on the chin and turn the other cheek and all the rest of it. Because not only is that by far the best thing for the children involved, but for you probably as well. And I don't know how much this resonates with you in in the moment, probably not at all for a lot of people listening, but it will also be the best thing for that person that you're in conflict with or those people that you're in conflict with. There's this incredible thing that happens if you display just more and more respect in the face of disrespect. 
there are a lot of situations where that starts to influence the other people far more than you expect. I certainly experienced it in my own life as I've continued to improve different friendships and my marriage and my relationships with family members and stuff. It's usually not fighting against the thing that's not working that makes progress. It's usually investing in the areas that I would like to see more of. And as we plant those types of seeds, a lot of the time then the trees start to grow and we get some fruit. It just it takes time. It's a process. And I'm not saying you should necessarily endlessly be the doormat and be walked over or anything else. I mean, that's all up to you. But I am saying that if you want this situation to be different, you might need to be um, overly forgiving and generous and all the rest of it because that's ultimately probably what that higher path looks like in the, in the moment. I'm certainly not perfect. I certainly don't always get it right. I don't want to make this sound like I'm oversimplifying it or sort of insinuating that there are very easy answers. And I don't think in many of these situations there are. But sometimes when we zoom out, there is a path, you know, that fork in the road that we're at, there is a path that leads to a potential for things to improve. And there's a path that leads to a very likely getting more locked into the current patterns. So you can figure out what is going to work for you. The next type of conflict is data conflict. This conflict often arises from different interpretations of information or a lack of information. Simply put, this is stuff like, you said you were going to do this. No, I didn't. I never agreed to that. This is the type of conflict where it's about expectations and the conflict often comes up because of a misalignment of expectations. It could be data about plans and structure. You know, you said you were going to do this. No, I didn't. Grandparents are allowed to do this. No, they're not. But it might, so, might also be data about the kids themselves, like what's best for them, the amount of screen time that's helpful or sugar or dietary issues or um, gender sort of stuff I know is a very common topic that a lot of separated families are navigating and I'm sure grandparents and parents are also struggling and grappling with all of that as well. So here there is an element of data. It's like what does the research actually say? And I suppose there is an option to go in and correct the data and see if you can get on the same page about this. I think though in a lot of grandparent-parent relationships the data conflict tends to be a little bit of a red herring. <laughs> I would suggest that maybe it's not as essential as you think that the other person agrees with everything that you think about everything and maybe what's important is clarifying those expectations about the data. <laughs> so yeah, okay, you don't think sugar is such a big deal. Again, from our perspective, we're really trying to limit the amount of sugar that the kids have. Given the fact that we've got these different ideas about what's best, could we organize a time to maybe go through and, you know, we don't have to go through meal by meal, but if we can get a generally on the same page about how much sugar that they're consuming and when the kids come back, the story that they're telling us matches that then of course we'd be more than happy for them to spend as much time at your place over the holidays as possible. Um, if we're not sure, the risk for us, of course, is that they're exposed to a massive sugar spike. And I know for you this won't seem like a big deal, but for us we do see the spiral in their behaviour, challenges concentrating at school, etc. So although it's not something that you necessarily agree with, so I'm saying you've got different data, would you be willing to reduce their sugar? It's like, yep, I get it. We've got different expectations. We're looking at the information differently. I think this is what the research says. You're looking at something else. 
could we at least agree to do this? So in a way, one of the options for dealing with data is to clarify the data, but the other option is to just go back to the behaviour. Maybe it's possible just to clarify what you're both going to do and then you can leave aside that what you both think. It's almost like agree to disagree and the way that we do this in practice is to talk about the plan forward, who's going to be doing what, when, etc. And that's often, by the way, the way that trust is rebuilt. So we've talked about relationship conflict, interest conflict and data conflict. The next possible kind of conflict that would often come up is structure. If you're noticing that one person is consistently late for meeting up, then maybe changing the time that you meet might solve that problem so they've got a little bit more time to get ready. Or maybe you drive to their house and pick up the kids so you're not sitting there fuming at the handover place, you know, waiting, why aren't they here yet, what the heck's going on kind of thing. So I would look at ways of changing the structure which might inherently then start to resolve the conflict The challenge with giving specific advice about this is that it's quite case by case, but I would think about how the contact happens, like how changeover happens, how the kids spend time at grandparents' house, which room they're in, who else is there, maybe having all the kids go at once is causing particular problems, so separating them might solve the problem and grandma's willing to do more babysitting if she doesn't have to have them all at once. Just, you know, these are examples of just changing the structure might inherently start to solve the problem. And then you don't need to convince them why they should do it because it's what a grandparent should do. It's just, would this make it easier? Great. No worries. We've sorted that one out. Sometimes there's limited options for changing the structure. Of course, it's by consent. So the other person might just say, no, that's not something I can do. But in many situations, this is an option that's worth giving some thought. The final type of conflict is values conflict. This is the kind of conflict that comes up from different beliefs or values. In conflict between parents and grandparents, a lot of the conflict about values is about parenting itself, like what's best for kids, how much time should they spend with extended family, what's a healthy diet, what's good for their emotional development, what's the right way to focus on school and achievement or sport or extracurricular activities, or phone use, or swearing, or, you know, there's just an endless list really of potential clashes in value. A lot of the assumptions that people have about grandparent relationships as well are based on values that they hold. They think that family are the most important thing in life, for example, so feel completely gutted about the fact that their daughter could cut them off from their granddaughter. Or they, on the other hand, feel like if you respect somebody that there would be give and take. And so they feel like them holding on to the boundaries with this overly pushy grandma or grandpa might be something that's completely appropriate given the fact that they don't want to risk their kids being exposed to something that would impact their mental health. And in all of these situations, there's no right and wrong. What you're effectively dealing with is this misalignment with priorities. And so the discussion has to be about prioritizing. We both hold these two different values. Family's important. Um, The kids' mental well-being should be prioritized. Well, how are we going to make these meet? Like, I want to see you for this much and you want structure. I would like input into how the kids are raised. You feel like as the parent that should be a decision that you can make alone or you want to make that with your husband rather than having extended family be involved. When you come to our city, you should stay with us versus we should keep our 
space, personal space, and you can stay in a hotel. <laughs> um, these are all examples of values conflict, how money should be dealt with, who should contribute what to the finances, particularly related to the raising of the kids. And so instead of starting from an assumption that the other person's obviously got it wrong and therefore doing your best to convince them to agree with you, maybe it would be more productive to focus on discussing how you're going to navigate this difference in values. And so a starting point when we're dealing with values conflict is simply to acknowledge the fact that, of course, we have very different values. We develop our values through all of the experiences that we have, the information that we have access to, the people that we're influenced by. So no two people are going to have exactly the same ideas. It's good in some situations if you can have a high level of alignment, but you're going to need to do some calibration. <laughs> you're going to need to have some discussions around the boundaries and who's going to do what. So I would just approach this values conflict as a matter of, of course, we've got different starting points. We've got different expectations, different perspectives, different things that we think are important and different things that are important to us. And what I've noticed is that when we've come up against a different idea, it tends to result in conflict between the two of us. I don't know if that's something you've noticed as well. So it's just normalising it, you know. I wonder if this is what's contributing to our arguments and disagreements. And therefore, it sort of then opens the door to say, well, I'm wondering then maybe there's a way for us to get a little bit more on the same page moving forward. And despite the fact that we've got different values, maybe if we can make sure that we're doing what the other person expects, it might solve some of the tension that's been building up. It might even be drilling down to the specific issue, like an example is safety. I've, I've done a number of different mediations and a parent refuses to let a grandparent spend time with a kid because they're worried about their safety, like they might want to be there and supervise it, so to speak, or they put some constraint in, like it shouldn't be overnight so you can't go out of this geographical area or whatever. And safety is something that it's just this catch-all for making sure that you'll never be able to resolve the conflict. You know, you could either go down the data conflict approach of, well, let's make sure that, you know, we talk, what do you mean by supervised? How far apart do you want to stand? Do you want me to let you know before I feed them? That kind of thing. But ultimately something like safety is, it is a subjective, um, there is a subjective layer that we bring to it. There isn't any it's safe enough threshold that you reach and then everybody agrees that things are safe. Like there is always with any activity that we ever do an element of risk. So to be fully safe is just this bizarre principle that of course we'll never obtain. So somebody saying I need to do this because of safety, I think, well, how much safety? Do you know? Like we need to change that language to be more like it's on a continuum and of course that's an important principle to hold but it's not like a checklist that then all of a sudden things are safe. And then on the flip side, when I'm talking to clients who have very genuine concerns for the well-being of their children or situations that could easily be interpreted as neglectful or abusive type of language, even if it's like very old school parenting, you know, like very directive, top-down, critical, negative feedback, that kind of stuff, let alone any kind of physical element like smacking a kid on the bottom or grabbing a kid to restrain them. These are all incredibly challenging areas because there's such a high layer of subjectivity built into it all. And particularly when you're hearing about something that happened to your child, 
after the event, there's this, of course, a very strong protective instinct that kicks in. And so one of the mistakes I think that grandparents make is that they also only approach safety in terms of this checklist type of approach. It's like, all right then, well, if I'm not safe, prove it. Or, oh, well, if you think I'm such a bad influence, then what am I saying that's so negative? That's no different to the way that you talk to your kid. And unfortunately, again and again, I see the only effect that this has is pushing the parent's buttons. And if your goal is to get this parent on side for you spending more time with their kid, it seems to me like a logical approach would be to say, well, what would you need to see from me or hear from me or have me doing that would give you more assurance that the kids are safe? I agree. We're on the same page here. Let's keep the kids safe. You know, maybe we can come up with a plan that sits okay with both of us, put a trial in place with the process of reviewing it. I'd be happy to be, you know, go a little bit above and beyond what I consider to be appropriate in communication just because we've got different ideas around how much detail should be shared. And if that's important to you, I'm more than happy to go with it. You know, what's the big deal? Let's just keep this situation light and easy and with no drama and happy and pleasant and you know, et cetera, et cetera. You can probably hear the eye rolls going on as people are listening to this podcast, thinking about what an unrealistic picture this is. But one of the things that you want to do if you're talking about a value like safety is instead of just drilling down to the detail and the data, it's to approach it like a difference in values. Okay, look, I I also would want to keep the kids safe, but it sounds like we've got a, a bit of a different way that we think about all of that. Could you talk me a through a little bit about your concerns. Of course, it might be difficult for me to hear, but I'd be willing to do my best not to react and be defensive, just to listen, because I I think that it's important that we have a common understanding about, obviously, there's things that I haven't noticed, and the last thing I want is to cause any negative impact on them. I mean, if you can stomach it, if you can tolerate it, if it's something that you can live with, even if you don't think it's necessary or should happen and it's it's not in line with your values, you'll need to decide how strongly you hold to those and where there is the opportunities to be flexible because you can see some benefit. Just the fact that you're willing to acknowledge their value, yep, I get it, safety is something that's really important to you, it's a priority, and willing to discuss it and take it seriously, yep, no worries, what would be helpful for you then in terms of my communication so that you felt more comfortable around that? It's like inviting this collaborative approach, whereas if someone says, look, I'm concerned about the kid's safety, and then the other person responds with, how dare you imply that the kids aren't safe with me? Who do you think I am? Blah, blah, blah. It's just all of a sudden we're off on a side road which just leads to more arguments and conflict. So you're not going to convince them to change their mind going down that path, I don't think, in many situations. Usually the most productive conversation is about the behaviour or solutions with a future focus. Gosh, so that's been a mouthful. I I hope that that hasn't been too overwhelming and I'd love to get your feedback around whether or not these ideas are useful for you. Do you like these types of episodes where I really go in depth around a particular topic and use a number of different lenses to explore it? Or would you prefer me to keep things simpler and shorter just so that you can have more of the bite-sized piece of information? And what's useful for you? Do you like the sort of focus on family relationship conflict? Or would you prefer more examples around workplaces, leadership, dealing with um, organisational challenges as a staff member, working on your own business with your team? 
very much open to suggestions, questions, comments, or critiques of the program. Thank you.